Solo te mira y ya te callas Esconden al papá que es el que paga Apunta la nueva y no hay que disparar You're welcome, Neil. An oddly amazing segue. This is hell. Music's a little loud there. There you go. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Daphne Agosan Ariana. Daphne, how horribly did I pronounce your name? You did great. <laughs> Thank you. Here in a supervisory role only today is Alex Jerry. Daphne, how was your weekend? It was good. I discovered decolonial feminists, and that's what I am now. Oh, really? So uh, who was the decolonial feminist that you were reading? Uh, It's a compilation by Margaret McLaurin, and uh, yeah, they're cool. No, oh, cool. I have to check it out. My weekend was uh, went, went well because... Uh, I have an update for listeners. My girly did listen to my monologue about why we have a long-term relationship from my perspective, and I was wondering if she would love it and me or if my stuff, what little I have, would be out on the lawn by the time my monologue was over when she listens to the show on Saturday mornings on WNUR. And the verdict is in. She loved it. The monologue made her cry. So big points for Chucky. More importantly, Daphne, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? Okay, first, ah. Uh, <laughs> our question from hell is, uh, what else will fall with the autumn leaves? What, what else will fall with the autumn leaves? That is really poetic. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new gray on black, this is hell, t-shirt. We've been giving away the trucker's caps and the face masks. Now we're giving away the new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can check out by going to thisishell.com.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to... Myself, Chuck at ThisIsHell.com or Alex at ThisIsHell.com, but we must have your answers in by the end of Thursday's show when we announce this week's winner, as we do most weeks, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth when we're wrapping up that week's group of shows. Daphne will be sharing your answers to this week's question from Hell following our guests. Speaking of which, on today's show... The Arctic is melting. You've probably heard that warning before. You may remember predictions that the Arctic will be completely melted by 2100, which is frightening stuff, as that's only 80 years away. Of course, we'll all be old or dead by then, so might not even notice. That's when they updated those predictions, and the Arctic ice cap is now going to be melting by... 2050, and that's only 30 years away, and we're all hoping we're around for, but still, it, it, for that, but, but still, you know, it's only 30 years away. We got 30 years. That's when the latest predictions came in, and that showed that the ice cap disappearing as soon as 2035, that's only 15 years out. Sure, there are some venturing capitalists who see this as a great opportunity for mineral and resource extraction as huge untapped areas will suddenly be accessible. Problem with that is it takes a lot of fossil fuels to extract resources and fossil fuels is what is accelerating climate change, which is causing things like the Arctic ice cap to melt. And with records being set every year when it comes to how much fossil fuels we are burning, that 2035 prediction is probably wrong too. So what happens when the people fleeing climate change in the south head north only to find people fleeing climate change from the north? 
we'll find out how bad things are going to get and how fast they will get real bad when we speak with journalist Gloria Dickey, who wrote The Guardian's story. The Arctic is in a death spiral. How much longer will it exist? The region is unraveling faster than anyone could once have predicted, but there may still be time to act. Gloria served on the board of directors of the Society of Environmental Journalists from 2016 to 2019. In 2018, Gloria was named a National Geographic Explorer in Storytelling. In 2019, Gloria was nominated for a National Magazine Award in the short feature category for reporting on China's Giant Panda National Park. Her forthcoming book on the bears of the world will be published by W.W. Norton. You can find out more about Gloria by going to GloriaDickey.com and you can follow Gloria on Twitter at GloriaDickey. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell and Daphne has this week's hangover cure. This is her... This week's hangover cure is birria broth. According to an article that is so Oregon at the Willamette Week website headline, the birria broom has reached Portland. Here's where to get it. Birria is having a, bo- a moment, but unlike other darlings of Instagram's foodorati, rainbow bagels, pancake cereal, the birria broom is well-deserved. Built on centuries of tradition, transformed into a trend by social media-savvy Mexican and Chicano millennials looking to satisfy cross-cultural cravings with crunchy tacos and birria ramen. When most Mexicans and taco aficionados think of birria, they think of birria de chivo, gold marinated in a red chile sauce and slow-roasted, traditionally underground or in clay ovens, as if found as is found in Jalisco, Zacatecas, Michoacán, and other parts of western Mexico. The meat is succulent and tender and creates a hearty broth called consomme that is served on the side and known for being a hangover cure. That makes this week's hangover cure birria broth because birria has finally come to Portland. At least for white people. <laughs> that is the whitest town. Good Lord. I mean, statistically, it's the whitest town, but if they're just finding birria now, Jesus criminy. Putting people before profits. Sorry, let me do that again. Putting people before profits. Since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Sure, you can get the This Is Hell face mask or trucker's cap or t-shirt or tote bag or coffee mug or whatever to show your support, but you can also become a subscriber to This Is Hell. This is Hell's Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can now find over 150 Patreon podcasts right now. It's like an additional year of This Is Hell with monologues by me, classic interviews that you can't find anywhere else but on Patreon. And on this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we shared an interview from April 2008 with a former Wall Street economist who was the economic advisor at the time for the Dennis Kucinich for President campaign, Michael Hudson. We shared that interview for two reasons. One, it was based on an article Michael had written for a counterpunch and counterpunch is in the midst of a fundraising drive. They're nearly halfway to their goal, so show your support by going to counterpunch.org. And we wanted to help by bringing attention to the work they have done. And two, last week Thomas Frank was on And he was talking about how the elite class fail a lot and are unwilling to admit their failures, constantly going back to the same elite who keep screwing things up. Case in point, Michael Hudson pointing out how Hillary Clinton's plan to address the subprime lending and mortgage crisis, which had been going on for about a year, was to bring in a team of elite all-stars to fix the problem. bigger problem is that the team's lineup included Alan Greenspan and earlier Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker, Clinton Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin, you know, the people who Michael points out created the crisis in the first place by killing regulations like Glass-Steagall. So to show our support for Counterpunch and to remind us all that if the only tool you have in your toolbox is a bunch of elites, you will start treating all your problems, even the ones the elites created, with the same bunch of elites, no matter how often they're wrong and utterly fail. Also on Patreon, I describe my work day and week, the how and why of my part in putting This Is Hell together. So if you want a behind-the-scenes look at This Is Hell and to be reminded that Hillary Clinton's and the Democratic Party's plan to deal with a pending financial crisis of 2008 was to get the same people who broke the economy in the first place to fix it, Become a Patreon subscriber to This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can right now hear over 150 Patreon podcasts with new monologues from me and interviews from our archive that are unavailable anywhere else. Thanks to Jonathan and Anne for joining us as our newest Patreon subscribers. 
Also, thanks goes out to Tyler, Teresa, and Bradley, who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support and contributed to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Again, where you can find all of the different ways in which you can support This Is Hell. So thanks again to Tyler, Teresa, and Bradley for showing your support. And thanks to Jonathan and Anne for becoming our newest Patreon subscribers. Besides for subscribing to Patreon, there is another way you can see what happens behind the scenes here on This Is Hell. There is another way you can witness what it is like to put together This Is Hell, and that's by becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell. We are looking for volunteer board ops who can show up for our daily 10 a.m. show here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. And we're looking for those who can work regularly, one, two, three or more times a month or even a week to run the board like Alex does, like Richard does, and like Alex has trained both Daphne and Jess to do. They just did that last week. We are very flexible, and if you can only do it weekly or a couple times a month, we can work within your schedule. If you are interested in this unique opportunity, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. Chuckatthisishell.com. The position does come with a very modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. We are looking for people who can be here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge again. It's 10 a.m. in the mornings during the weekdays. This is also your chance to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. If you have your own podcast idea or sound projects of any kind, you get access to our studio if you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell. Email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. We also mentioned on last week's show how a listener in Berlin who had transcribed an interview of ours and then translated it into Croatian wanted permission to transcribe our most recent interview with William I. Robinson on his book, The Global Police State. Of course, we said, yes, please go ahead. And we are looking for volunteers to contribute remotely on other projects where you do not have to be here in our studio. In fact, we got an email from Matt in Altoona, Pennsylvania, who writes, good morning to the crew. I've been listening to the show for a couple of years now on the suggestion of a friend. While I've always been a fan, your recent interview with Kate Clark on the situation in Afghanistan made me a true believer that This Is Hell might be the most important program being broadcast in the United States today. That said, I'd love to support the show, but don't have a ton of money. Another listener had written in about transcribing interviews. I have some experience transcribing long-form interviews for my old job as a university research assistant. I'd be more than happy to volunteer for this kind of work. I could maybe even convince my girlfriend to translate interviews into Spanish when needed. Matt and Matt's girlfriend... That would be awesome. Matt adds, let me know if there's any more information you guys might need about myself. Many thanks for all the work you put in. In solidarity, Matt and Altoona. Matt, you have given us all the information we need. And that is, you actually want to transcribe interviews for us, and we will be contacting you very soon. If you live in the Chicago area and would like to become a board op and an on-air contributor to This Is Hell, email me at chuckatthisishell.com, where you can also email me if you are interested in transcribing interviews or other remote contributions you can make to This Is Hell as we rebuild our nearly 25-year online archive of shows. Again, if you are interested in joining our staff, email me, chuck at this is hell. Coming up, the Arctic is melting and fast. We'll also have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests. The planet's on fire. So yes, this is hell. The Arctic is melting far faster than anyone predicted, which likely means it's going to melt far faster than we currently think it will, which is bad for all of us, not only the people who live in the Arctic. Here to tell us how fast the Arctic is melting, why it is not meeting more conservative predictions, and what it means for the planet, journalist Gloria Dickey wrote the Guardian article, The Arctic is in a death spiral. How much longer will it exist? The region is unraveling faster than anyone could once have predicted, but there may still be time to act. Welcome to This Is How, Gloria. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. You can find out more about Gloria at GloriaDickey.com, and you can follow Gloria on Twitter at Gloria Dickey. Gloria has a forthcoming book on the Bears of the World, which will be published by W.W. Norton, so please look for that. You write at the end of July of this year, 40% of the 4,000-year-old Milne Ice Shelf, located on the northwestern edge of Ellesmere Island, calved into the 
see. Canada's last fully intact ice shelf was no more. Ellesmere Ice Shelf was the largest ice shelf in the Arctic at 3,500 square miles and had been intact for some 3,000 years. But in 2005, the Ailes Ice Shelf broke off, becoming the Ailes Ice Island, which is approximately five miles by nine miles. These are huge chunks of ice. Why should we be concerned here in the United States that Canada's last fully intact ice shelf is no more? That that what was the Arctic's largest ice shelf for 3,000 years is no longer what it once was. Why should we be concerned all the way down here in the United States? Right. I mean, there's there's a lot of answers to that. But I guess the, kind of the short uh, and sweet version is what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Ultimately, um, you know, the Arctic is responsible. It's kind of the refrigerating lid on the planet, and it controls a lot of our weather system. Um, and so we're already seeing some of the effects um, perhaps with like a wonkier jet stream in the mid-latitudes from the Arctic no longer um, being as frozen. That's disrupting, bringing kind of punishing bouts of extreme weather, flooding into the U.S. Um, and again, sea level rise obviously is another huge concern too when we look at the Greenland ice sheet, the Antarctic ice sheet, um, and what's happening at the poles there too. So yes, there's lots of downstream impacts from these, from these huge meltdowns in the Arctic. What is the rate at which this is happening? Is this happening exponentially? Is it getting worse every year with that trajectory going higher and higher and higher? Yes. I mean, over the past 30 years, the Arctic has warmed at twice the rate of the rest of the world, but we are seeing that kind of pick up a little bit now. And it's probably, you know, maybe three to four times as fast as the rest of the world right now. Um, So it is increasing. Um, You know, the Milne Ice Shelf was kind of just one of many many headlines this summer about what was going on in the Arctic, whether it was fires in Siberia or, you know, summer sea ice hitting a second record low. It does seem like every year these things are, are getting worse. The Ar- you write the Arctic is unraveling and it's happening faster than anyone could have imagined just a few decades ago. To you, what explains why the predictions scientists have made, why the consensus did not accurately predict how fast it would happen and that it would get much worse, much quicker than expected? I think, I mean, part of that's just problems with the models and kind of a lack of, you know, data and information that we didn't have 15 years ago. I mean, there's still gaps in terms of the role of clouds and how that could affect climate change. Um, and as well as kind of discovering new feedback mechanisms, too, in the past 15 years and trying to input that information into into those models that are predicting the future. I think basically the science is just getting better. Um, you know, we've kind of seen an estimation of summer sea ice being gone by 2050, and then it was 2040, and now it's 2035. It, it seems to be, you know, moving closer and closer. And we're also able to kind of confirm um, some of those modeling experiments with what we're actually seeing now. We can actually kind of compare and contrast how accurate they are to, to further kind of zoom in on what might happen in the next couple decades. I know we should never assume, but should we assume that whatever prediction scientists are making today, that they fall far short of how quickly it will be far worse than they suggest just based on their history and their predictions? Um, I think that, that's hard to say. I think, sure, we might see some things happen faster, you know, than than on schedule than what's predicted. Um, at the same time, a lot of it depends on human action too. Like, if we're going to make any changes, or if we're able to come up with some sort of geoengineering solution um, that could potentially slow things down as well. Are the predictions more dire because we have not curbed our use of fossil fuels? Were they? Were those predictions based on humanity actually taking action and cutting fossil fuels instead of continuing increasing the output of fossil fuels? Um, What you typically see with a lot of kind of these predictions in science is they put forward two different trajectories when we're talking about the future. So one is a business as usual model, and then the other one is um, mitigated emissions. So that that tends to vary. You know, one of the things that I wrote in this article um, is, for example, when you think about summer sea ice or sea ice in the Arctic, um, even if we were able to stop all emissions tomorrow, because we already have so much CO2 and methane in the atmosphere, it would still take um, you know, decades for, for the sea ice to stop melting, just to, to stabilize. It's not something that could happen overnight. So it's not necessarily that just you know, the predictions uh, you know, weren't accurate, but rather, um, yeah, they, they, we have to, it, would, it would still take a long time to fix these things. 
So uh, just because this, and I, I promise this is my last question about the predictions, because it just <laughs> it just really gets me because it's something that I keep seeing in the media over and over again. Are, are, are there scientists who did get it right? Are they now being rewarded for being accurate by having a greater influence on the scientific community's predictions on climate change? Or is it like other fields where those who say got it completely wrong on the 2008 financial crisis and real estate bust are still the same media's talking heads and the government's leadership on the issues, while those who were accurate on those assessments, they all got sidelined. Did anything kind of similar happen with climate change? Were there people who were getting right and the people who were getting right are still sidelined? I've heard a few, I've actually had a few emails this past week about people saying, oh, this researcher, you know, was saying this back then that it was going to happen faster than expected. I don't know that it's so much of an I told you so scenario. Um, I think that a lot of climate scientists tend to work pretty collaboratively and, you know, there's not kind of this, this feud between them. Um, I think any, you know, any improvement of predictions and modeling helps everyone. So I don't think that it's, you know, necessarily a scientific war or, um, you know, and of course, there's always the climate deniers who think none of this is true to you, and maybe that's a different, a different story. But in general, I think it's it's yeah, it's fine. So you don't see the same kind of punditocracy competition then? I don't think so. Not not among the client, climate scientists that I've spoken with. You also write that northern Siberia and the Canadian Arctic are now warming three times faster than the rest of the world. To what extent do you think? We may not recognize how much climate change is already upon us because relative to the Arctic, our climate has not been had as significant of a change. Does the Arctic warming much faster than where we live lead to a false sense of security when it comes to ourselves and climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think that you could probably think that a few years ago, I think now with, you know, the huge wildfires that we've seen in the Western US and Western Canada, um, you know, the past few years, maybe that that holds less true. But I, I do think there's kind of this out of sight, out of mind um, element, you know, since most of the population does not live in the Arctic, that it seems like this very far away problem. Um, and, you know, sea level rise that results from the loss of these ice sheets is so incremental, um, that it's kind of, you know, it's going to be hard to sort of see the big issue until it's until it's really too late in regards to, you know, the flooding of coastal cities. So every year does the ice cap get small, smaller or are there, are there anomalies in the pattern? Because I would be afraid that if there are any kind of anomalies in the pattern, then climate change deni- denialists could say, you know, look, last year it didn't uh, get as bad as it was the year before. Are there anomalies in the growth and the, the decrease and the increase of Arctic sea ice? Well, it kind of depends what kind of ice you're talking about. So, for example, Arctic sea ice um, does not, it's already floating atop the ocean, so it doesn't contribute um, to sea level rise or anything like that. It's already, you know, uh, in, in the water. Um, and so that does change each year, depending on, on weather patterns. That's kind of what predicts um, the record lows that we see each September. And there's variation to that. But the past you know decade, we've seen pretty much every single year getting lower and lower with, with 2012 being the lowest um, in the record. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at the Greenland ice sheet, the Greenland ice sheet is not uh, is no longer growing in, in sort of mass balance. It's been shrinking since since the 1980s. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's a bit of fluctuation, but overall, it, it's a downward trend uh, for most of the ice cap. This is the Greenland ice sheet, the ice covering the interior of England, correct? Or Greenland, correct? Greenland, yes, yeah, Greenland. I don't know why I said England. Uh, <laughs> what has happened? Maybe in fifty years. Uh, what has happened? Actually, be the opposite. What has happened since it stopped growing? What has? What has been the effect on not just the environment and the climate in Greenland, but on the people of Greenland? How has it affected them? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not quite as familiar um, with with Greenland, but I know what, what we've seen elsewhere. You know, where, where ice starts. Um, Shrinking and becoming less solid is, is a big impact on sort of hunting um, traditions among um, the Inuit and not being able to kind of participate in traditional harvest as much as they once did. Um, and, you know, I've also heard, too, in some places, you know, that there's kind of a, a weird sense of community community that springs up around a lot of these cold places. Um, and so as things get warmer, like I've heard, you know, community ties start to start to fray, which is quite interesting from a from a social um, aspect. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, like, you know, their lives are so intricately tied to the ice. And if you take that away, it's going to cause tremendous upheaval in the future. And I want to get to back, get back to that in a moment. But you also have an interactive map that comes along with this article. And the map shows how ice has been lost since August of 1980. Is this all relatively new? And was it all unavoidable? We simply were not aware. The science did not yet know what would most likely happen back in August 1980. Was this all unavoidable? Because back in 1980, we still just 
didn't know? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we know that some people did know that this was going to happen in terms of the the oil companies. And there's been, you know, huge exposés on Exxon and their role in, in kind of denying and funding climate change um, denial science uh, for years. Um, but yeah, I think in general, like most people were not aware of climate change until probably the 2000s. Um, the ability to monitor monitor Arctic sea ice only began around the late 70s, early 80s with the satellite record. Um, so that's kind of when we started tracking it. And, you know, as of once we got to around 2007, to the mid 2000s we started to see these declines that became much and much worse um, you know in the past in the past 10 years I don't want to look back with rose-colored glasses but in retrospect what could we have done over the last 15 years to address Arctic ice cap melting but chose not to do yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot that we could have done. Obviously, cutting um, CO2 and methane emissions would have been the been the biggest thing. Um, I, what's been interesting to me is, you know, I've been working as a journalist for, you know, seven or eight years now. And, you know, at the start of that, a lot of people were still talking as if the world c- could come together and make these changes and, and, you know, somehow stop and curb emissions and, and slow climate change down. Now, when I talk to a lot of scientists, it's a lot more of a focus um, on geoengineering solutions and carbon capture. That's kind of the only thing that they really mentioned as as a possibility for us to do now compared to, you know, what we could have done around the time that Al Gore was pushing for everyone to take action with uh, an inconvenient truth. So only through technology and not conservation, is that what they're focusing on then? That's what it seems like. I mean, you know, this this article kind of mentions there's there's still some time to act in terms of perhaps not making things get even worse than they are. But there's a certain element of change that we've already kind of locked in because all of those greenhouse gas emissions are already in the atmosphere. Um, and so, you know, we kind of look at the U.S. is poised to exit the Paris Agreement on November 4th. Um, you know, China at least has come out and said that they're pledging to be, you know, carbon neutral by 2060. So there's some progress being made, but it's not going to happen fast enough uh, at, for the scale of these changes in the Arctic. And so all you can really hope for at this point is some sort of carbon capture solution. So what does that say to you about our uh, the fight against climate change, about our future with climate change, when it seems like we have abandoned the idea of behavioral change and are just now hoping for some technology that may be in the offing, uh, something that we may have already, but we're waiting for it to be profitable? What does that say to you about our response to climate change when we've given up on behavior and just hoping for technology? Yeah. Well, I think, I think it really closely uh, mirrors what we're seeing with the pandemic right now, whereas the U.S. has basically given up on behavioral changes and they're just hoping for a vaccine next year. I think that um, we can kind of see how we're responding to climate change by looking at the pandemic. And that's exactly what's happening. People are not willing, um, you know, to make those sacrifices in the short term. And they're hoping for some sort of miracle miracle solution that won't, you know, impact their their quality of life. Um and the other thing to think about, too, is that we're, you know, we're still adding, you know, billions of people uh, every few decades to the planet who uh, are, you know, increasing that that pressure on the Earth's systems. We are speaking with journalist Gloria Dickey, who wrote The Guardian Story, The Arctic is in a Death Spiral. How much longer will it exist? Gloria served on the board of directors of the Society of Environmental Journalists from 2016 to 2019. She has a book coming out at W.W. Norton on the bears of the world. You can find out more about Gloria by going to GloriaDickey.com, and you can follow Gloria on Twitter, at Gloria Dickey. So the interactive map shows how the ice was lost up until 2010 at one point, when a chunk of ice four times the size of Manhattan broke off the Peterman Glacier, causing the ice sheet to retreat 18 kilometers. With little snow falling during winter, Greenland's ice cap is subjected to record melting, which lasts 50 days longer than average. There are those within the Trump administration who see this as a boon. Uh, The U.S. opened up a consulate in Greenland in June, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has openly talked about the benefits of the ice melting when it comes to natural resource extraction and has also spoken about competition with China and Russia over those resources as a national security interest. To what extent is any competition for resources potentially driving the melting of the Arctic and the melting of the ice cap? Is the desire for resources causing the ice cap to melt? Are we not doing anything because of what we see as the positive outcome of resource extraction? I think no one, no one's going to say that to you. Um, but certainly, I mean, there's a lot of benefits um, to corporate interests with the Arctic opening up in terms of shipping routes, in terms of access 
to rare earth minerals um, and to some extent oil and gas as well. It makes those things easier, but it's also this kind of, you know, perverse, um, it is this kind of perverse uh, deal, I guess, because yeah, you melt the Arctic and it's easier to get to these things and then you pull out the oil and gas and that further melts the Arctic. It's this very um, inextricably linked process. Um, And I think, you know, certainly countries like Russia and perhaps China um, you know, are kind of betting on that and they're seeing their fortunes grow if, if, if this becomes possible to navigate the northern sea route, uh, to get in there and get, you know, minerals from Greenland. There's, you know, there's a, a flip side to all of this, I guess, in terms of those interests. You also point out that at outposts in the Canadian Arctic, permafrost is thawing 70 years sooner than predicted. Roads are buckling. Houses are sinking. Has climate change already caused people to flee their homes in the north and the Arctic? Are, are there climate change refugees fleeing the Arctic? Because when we think of, this might be uh, maybe racist on my part, but when we think of climate change causing refugees... The Arctic is never mentioned as an area that people would flee due to climate change. In fact, I think a lot of people think if we just keep going farther north, we can get away from climate change. So uh, has climate change already caused people to flee their homes in the Arctic? Yeah, I mean, you're right. We often think about sort of low-lying islands as being the um, first victims of climate change. But uh, as I wrote in the article, one of the places that we're also seeing is this um, Yupik village of Newtok, which is in northern Alaska, and thawing permafrost there has eroded the ground, and that whole the whole community needs to be relocated uh, by 2023. Um, so we are seeing places where we're having severe coastal erosion and severe permafrost thaw, having to pick up and move, move whole villages um, because the ground... Uh, is literally caving away below them. But the Yupik, where are they going to? Where can, where can anybody go to flee from climate change? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that there are clear answers to that. I mean, obviously, you know, one of the problems with New Talk is that it's kind of right on the coast, so they can move a little bit further inland, at least, um, to get away from, you know, more severe winter storms that are eroding the land uh, from the sea. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the permafrost underlies most of the Arctic. So if that's thawing, you're seeing huge impacts on infrastructure, you know, on pipelines, on houses, on roads. Um yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. I think the you know the future of of Arctic and its people is really um, really vulnerable right now. Yeah, let's talk about that infrastructure for a second, and especially you mentioned pipelines. You write that in Siberia, giant craters pockmark the tundra as temperatures soar, hitting 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the town of. Verkoyansk in July. This spring, one of the fuel tanks at a Russian power plant collapsed and leaked 21,000 metric tons of diesel into nearby waterways, which attributed uh, which attributed the cause of the spill to subsiding permafrost. What is that imp- in, uh, impact on infrastructure? There, these are areas that have experienced a great deal of resource extraction. Does Arctic sea ice disappearing in the summer mean more environmental disasters as infrastructure fails? Yeah. So, I mean, with, with the thawing permafrost, um, you know, I think of an interview that I had done with a scientist earlier this year in Alaska, and she's saying, you know, the mapping in terms of where the permafrost is buckling and thawing has not really like been done very well. So we don't actually know where these kind of um, threat zones are when we're building new projects or putting up, you know, sewage plants or, yeah, pipelines, um, which you think that you would want to know before you moved ahead with any project like that. Um, So, you know, the potential for spills in the future in the Arctic and contamination of waterways is really um, quite severe. uh, And we just don't know, you know, we should have a better idea of what what the ground looks like in these areas, and we don't. and, you know, that's that's kind of the other, I guess, flip, flip side too. to more de- development in the Arctic. We're going to be seeing more, you know, potentially processing plants, more roads going in as the Arctic opens up. And then you have this thawing, mushy permafrost uh, in the ground that kind of jeopardizes all of that investment. Yeah, that's the part I don't really get. It would seem like uh, here's all these resource extract- extraction aid companies coming into the area and taking away uh, resources, but at the same time, they're burning tons of fossil fuel, and it would just seem to be exacerbating climate change. So it would seem like their window of opportunity in getting any of these resources out will be very small and be very destructive. Why do we view these resource extractions as important when it comes to profits, but we do not view them as any kind of danger to the planet? 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, humans, we've seen it time and time again, think really in the short term here, right? So, I mean, even if the window is, is narrow to get in and get those resources out, we're still going to try and do it. That's that's kind of what we've seen. We're not kind of um, being cautious and playing it, uh, you know, conservatively in terms of getting in and getting the stuff out. We're already seeing in Alaska, like the ice roads, um, you know, up to the North Slope oil and gas operations are no longer staying frozen. You know, trucks can no longer move very easily uh, in the wintertime in summertime. So, um, you know, I think, yes, there's, there might be a very small window to be able to make some profit off of the Arctic. But uh, I think, you know, it, it is, as the podcast is named, going to hell very quickly after that, after we get some of those resources out. So that process is not sustainable in any way, correct? Most likely not. I think, you know, in terms of shipping, like that, uh, you know, shipping time above kind of Russia through the North, Northern Sea Route, um, I guess could potentially be sustainable because you're cutting shipping times. But in terms of resource extraction, that seems much less likely. You write the soaring heat leads to raging wildfires now common in hotter and drier parts of the Arctic. In recent summers, infernos have torn across the tundra of Sweden, Alaska, and Russia, destroying native vegetation. What is the long-term impact of what was until recently the very uncommon event of raging wildfires? What does that mean for the Arctic in the long term when wildfires are common? Yeah, I think a lot of the focus, you know, when people talk about the Arctic is often looking at the Arctic Ocean and changes there with the ice. Um, But we are seeing a big change as well because of these wildfires and because of the thawing permafrost, which releases methane as well and kind of creates this vicious cycle um, in terms of emissions. But we're seeing kind of an ecosystem transformation as well with kind of the Arctic tundra and the vegetation that exists there being replaced and burned by these fires and different, um, you know, more they call it the shrubification of the Arctic, kind of taller, bushier plants coming in, replacing lichens and sedges, which of course affects the animals like caribou and reindeer that feed on those plants. Um, So we are seeing a really dramatic shift uh, on land as well that's really changing the Arctic. And you talk about how for their own survival, the indigenous have to create the food the caribou and reindeer need to survive. You talk about how the Sami have to do that in, in Russia and in Europe. Warmer winters have forced many of them to change how they conduct their livelihoods, for example, by providing supplemental feed for their reindeer. Is that sustainable to provide the food for wildlife that the wild can no longer provide? How does relationship with nature change when nature depends upon feed from humans instead of from the wild? Yeah, well, before, so I mean, these were somewhat domestic reindeer, I guess. They would, you know, release them kind of to pasture, similar to how we might do with cows in the U.S., um, and they would graze, you know, on the Arctic forage all summer and and all winter long. But now what's happening is you're having these rain-on-snow events where the natural vegetation and and forage foods are being locked under ice. Um, And so without, you know, the reindeer herders going out there and giving them feed, they're they're all going to starve to death. Um, And obviously, you know, if you're kind of, a Sami reindeer herder living on the margins, that's, that's a huge cost to have to now go out and feed all those reindeer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that we are seeing, um, you know, facing potentially the loss of these these Arctic traditions and these, these li- livelihoods and these ways of life um, that, uh, you know, will be really hard, hard to stop. So we're talking about the p- uh, potential for foreign corporations to make a profit off of extraction in the Arctic. Do the people of the region financially benefit from the ice cap melting? For locals, is the ice better for the economy or worse? Um, I think it's a mixed bag. I I mean, I just finished another story that I was reporting looking at um, China's interest and investment in the Arctic. And a lot of the, you know, Inuit associations are actually quite open to investment coming in, in Canada at least. I know in Greenland as well. Um, They're open to dealing with foreign interests. They see it as potentially a way to improve uh, their quality of life. Um, which is perhaps not a narrative that you hear as much. Um, but then you have people, too, um, you know, where it sows a lot of discord and, um, you know, anger in communities that are divided on these issues, like you see with um, the Arctic uh, National Wildlife Refuge, too, right, where the community is kind of divided and, and it pits people against each other um, and tears apart uh, the fabric of communities. So I think it's, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's not all bad. Some people certainly living in the Arctic welcome this kind of investment and development, and others are opposed for for environmental reasons and for you know traditional traditional livelihoods china russia the u.s canada they're all interested in extraction how strong is the region politically when it comes to defending their sovereignty against resource colonialism if you will 
Yeah, I mean, so the Canadian Arctic, for example, is the least kind of defended territory on Earth. We don't have a lot of um, military up there that could defend against, you know, I guess a strike of some sort or someone trying to get in and take resources. Um, but I think the diplomatic relationships among Arctic, Arctic nations is quite strong. We have the Arctic Council, uh, which all eight uh, Arctic nations are members of. There's a lot of negotiations, a lot of open discussion. Um, I think that a threat of an actual sort of war in the Arctic is pretty overstated. We do see some some media coverage of that, um, but I think it more so tends to be, you know, we're going to see China enter the Arctic in terms of financial investment as opposed to some sort of military takeover of the Arctic. I think um, that's important to note. You write that tourism has boomed in the region, at least until the COVID shutdown, with throngs of wealthy visitors drawn to this exotic frontier in hopes of capturing the perfect selfie under the aurora borealis. Tourism, as many of our guests have pointed out in the past on our show, often leads to high levels of inequality aside from its negative environmental impact. How had increased tourism affected the region? Were they seeing success or inequality in environmental challenges? Uh, I think the Arctic is a little bit different. I mean, obviously things have changed now because of the pandemic. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Iceland is mostly the subarctic, but that's a good example where you see, uh, you know, to some extent an issue of over-tourism and it not being very sustainable and kind of eroding, um, you know, the culture and traditions uh, in Iceland. Uh, but I don't think that it's, you know, I think, you know, most of the Arctic nations are fairly wealthy. If you look at Norway and Sweden and Finland, I don't know that you're seeing it um, create a, a larger divide between the locals and uh, and the visitors. Um, so I think overall it's probably a good thing. But of course, the, the, you know, the greater issue with Arctic tourism is the carbon from the airplanes that it takes to get up there for all these vis- visitors traveling there, which again kind of creates that. Uh, you know, perverse comparison like you see with um, industry and development and the Arctic melting too, is that people are flying up there en masse to go see these places and they're contributing to its destruction. That is so depressing to me. What do you think attracts people to rush and see the end of the world without recognizing that they're contributing to the world's end by being tourists? Well, I think there is like that idea of it's, it's last chance tourism, right? It's like, you know, if you're going to sort of snorkel the Great Barrier Reef, you, people want to see it before it's gone. Um, and there is a very short term way of thinking among people. Um, I think, you know, the other thing, too, that I, I've read is that, you know, you know, Instagram is really driving the search for the new exotic and the new exotic is no longer beaches in Fiji, but it's, it's you know, the Aurora Borealis in Tromso or in Oslo or something like that. People want to go up, up, up north um, for for those perfect pictures. You write that the Arctic of the past is already gone. Following our current climate trajectory, it will be impossible to return to the conditions we saw just three decades ago. Is it possible that we can get us back, that we can get back to when we did the worst damage, the tipping point of the Arctic? Can we still get it back? And how big is that window of opportunity? In terms of global action, I think it's too late. Um, as I mentioned, I think, you know, the only really way to return to how things were to get below, you know, pre-industrial levels or back to what the temperature was in the 1980s is through, uh, you know, carbon capture technology coming online or some, you know, other sort of technological solution to this. Um, but we're simply not acting fast enough in terms of cutting emissions alone that it's going to be able to see the Arctic return to how it was Just a few more questions for you, Gloria. Uh, The world coming together, nations cannot seem to come together on their own. So how much can we depend on the world coming together when it comes to climate change? Can the decisiveness continue and still address climate change successfully? Can we fight climate change alongside a divisive political climate? I think what we really need right now is a a leader on this. Um, And the U.S. has kind of exited that sphere under President Donald Trump. Um, But I I personally do have a little bit of hope, uh, perhaps with China leading the charge on this. um, They are making huge strides. And, you know, with 1.3 billion people, that's quite... um, that's quite impressive, um, and hopefully that others will follow follow their lead. Um, but we'll have to see. I mean, again, I said they've pledged to become carbon neutral by 2060. That's still, you know, quite quite a ways off. Um, and, and action needs to happen really, really quickly. Um, but I do think that seeing a few developed nations lead, you know, serving as a leader on this um, will be really important for the rest of the world to come together. And I think in the past, you know, four years since the Paris Agreement, um, we haven't really seen that happen. 
the day after Election Day, the Trump administration says they will, they're scheduled to leave the Paris Climate Accords officially. Joe Biden says that if he's elected, the U.S. will re-enter those same talks. To what degree do you think the Paris Accords can save the Arctic ice cap? Well, I mean, we've kind of already locked in perhaps 1.5 to 2 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels. And as I mentioned, too, a lot of those emissions will stay in the atmosphere for years. So, you know, we might be able to prevent some of it from getting worse, but we're still kind of locked into some degree of greater melting for the next few decades um, if we don't if we don't turn things around. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a question of, you know, we have 50 percent of ice left versus, you know, no ice left in a, in a few hundred years. So a future of climate change likely means a future of more pandemics. Does a future of climate change and a future of more pandemics mean then the end of tourism? Do you think we'll get to a point where people just will not be able to be tourists anymore because they will be the virus? I don't, I'm, I'm not sure anyone knows that answer yet. Um, I think it's something we're all watching really closely right now. And there's kind of this idea that we you know we're going to return eventually to how things were before this pandemic. Um, but that, you know, as many people say, 2020 might not be the anomaly or it might just be the signifier of a new of a new normal of the new future um, with climate change, with more zoonotic spillover and subsequent pandemics. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think eventually we'll see it curtailed to some extent, uh, you know, but I'm not sure what to say for the next the next 10 years. Got one last question for you, Gloria. We've been speaking with journalist Gloria Dickey, who wrote the Guardian story, The Arctic is in a death spiral. How much longer will it exist? The region is unraveling faster than anyone could have predicted. But there may still be time to act. You can find out more about Gloria at GloriaDickey.com. She has a forthcoming book on bears coming out that's going to be published by W.W. Norton. And you can follow Gloria on Twitter at Gloria Dickey. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response as we have been discussing throughout this morning's conversation seems like a real issue when it comes to fighting climate change is our focus on profits over people is our focus on short-term profits over the long-term or even short-term sustainability of the planet and the environment what do you think it would take for us to finally overcome our focus on short-term profits do we have to wait for sea level to rise 30 feet before we finally change our views um I'm not, I'm not sure what it would take. I mean, I, I think um, the issues you, you kind of have to overthrow the capitalistic system, right, and kind of stop consuming. And a lot of people seem unwilling to do that, especially in North America. Um, so, I, yeah, short-term thinking, I think it's a problem. I think there's certain countries that perhaps have a longer outlook. Again, like China, they tend to think more in, you know, multiple generations than we do here in the U.S., um, but I don't know. I think I'm I'm fairly I'm fairly pessimistic on this. I think a lot of scientists are fairly pessimistic on this, um, and so it's really just going to be a matter of you know short term thinking in terms of coming up with with techno- technological solutions to to climate change and uh, adapting and mitigating what we can. Well, how successful of a strategy do you think that is in fighting climate change when we're sitting around hoping for a miracle? It's the same with the pandemic. We're sitting around hoping for a vaccine, right? I I don't know. I think, um, you know, there's a few brilliant individuals among us, hopefully, um, and the rest of us will kind of just wait and see and report and adapt. A new tagline for our show might be, uh, hoping for a miracle. This is hell. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gloria. I really, really appreciate you being on our show. You've been doing some fantastic writing that I've seen at The Guardian as well as elsewhere. Congratulations on your forthcoming book at W.W. Norton. Again, you can find out more about Gloria by going to GloriaDickey.com, and you can follow Gloria on Twitter at Gloria Dickey. Thank you so much for being on our show this morning. Thank you for having me. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Check this out. Front page of today's New York Times. Here's the headline. They spurned Clinton in 2016, but like Biden, and next to that is a picture of the Ramones. I have no idea, had no idea, that they spurned Hillary Clinton in 2016, but the Ramones are really pro-Biden. Also, I didn't know that they were still alive. I thought they were all dead. Daphne, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Uh, This question... This week's question from hell is, what else will fall with the autumn leaves? We have nine responses, a little more, on Facebook. Sweet. Uh, 
Bradley Ryan says the tendency of the rate of profit. <laughs> Eric M. Tikanen says my mask of sanity. <laughs> Brian Moy, my serotonin levels. <laughs> uh, Aaron Darsky, American optimism. Andrew Poyant, the U.S. empire. All right. Okay. Chris Harlow's the ruling class will be slaughtered as they cower and beg for mercy. <laughs> Just That's <leaves>. happy. <laughs> Aaron Butch, Tesla's stock after the Bolivian election. <laughs> uh, Jeremy Toms, apparently the illusion that questions from hell aren't structured for a particular response and don't have an agenda, lol. Hey. <laughs> Mark Cleveland, everything. Uh, Scott Safran, the weekend at Biden's meat puppet as soon as its handlers get it back to its corpse locker in the bunker they store him in <laughs> those weekends of bernie's jokes are getting <laughs> lengthy uh jonathan deep at this point all my hair could fall out and i wouldn't be surprised with how this year has been <laughs> is that it yes that's it you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can direct message them to us via twitter at this is hell radio you can email it to either of us alex at this is hell.com chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answers by the end of thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner as we do most weeks Following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth on Thursday's show, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In Rotten History, October 20th, 1951, 69 years ago this Tuesday, during a college football game between the Drake University Bulldogs and the Oklahoma A&M Aggies, Drake quarterback Johnny Bright, who was black and had a very cool name, Johnny Bright, that's a cool name, was knocked unconscious three times by Oklahoma defensive tackle Will Banks Smith, who was white. The third attack by Smith came just after Bright handed off the ball to fullback Gene McComer. The punch broke Johnny Bright's jaw, but he still managed to complete a 61-yard touchdown pass a few plays later before having to leave the game. The on-field assault had not been a complete surprise. Local media in Oklahoma, where Jim Crow was still very much alive, had already reported racist threats against Drake's African-American football star in the days before the game, because when you live in a state like Oklahoma, which was an illegal occupation as ruled by the Supreme Court that's this summer, a criminal jurisdiction occupying native land, which had been promised in writing in 1866, but like so many promises in writing that litter U.S. history was completely ignored and never fulfilled. When you are literally living on stolen land, it's not surprising that you have a state full of hateful racists in Oklahoma. Expecting trouble, two photographers from the Des Moines Register had positioned themselves on the sidelines. They captured the attack on Johnny Bright in a series of photographs that clearly showed Wilbank Smith nailing Bright after the ball had left his hands. But even after the photos drew national attention, appeared in Life magazine, and won a Pulitzer Prize, the president of Oklahoma A&M University continued to deny everything. Johnny Bright recovered, was later drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles, but wary of catching more trouble from white southern boys in the NFL, he instead opted for Canada and the Canadian Football League, where he played both offense and defense and helped lead the Edmonton Eskimos to three Grey Cup championships in a row while continuing to turn down offers from NFL teams. Yes, thankfully, Johnny Bright could escape the racism of the United States and the NFL by going and playing far more for far more tolerant football fans in Canada, far more enlightened Canadians, and playing for the first Calgary Stampeders, named for the people who follow environmentally rapacious resource extraction that led to the genocide of first Canadians in the gold rush, and having his best years in the CFL with the Edmonton Eskimos. Sure, Canada's not as racist as the United States, but come on, that's a really high bar that's easy to pass under. In Rotten History, October 22nd, 4004 BCE, 6,024 years ago this Thursday, at about 6 o'clock in the evening, so set your clocks, at about 6 o'clock in the evening this Thursday, four or 6,024 years ago, God began creating the universe, including the earth with all of its vibrant beauty and hellish rottenness. Sweet, it's the universe's birthday this Thursday. But what do you get the universe for its birthday when it literally has everything? Do you shop in the parallel universe? Because 
Despite that five-year-old article going viral claiming physicists at CERN, the world's largest particle physics lab, are about to make contact with the parallel universe, that ain't going to happen. That article's too old, and we can't get in touch with the parallel universe, so we can't shop there. The moment of the universe's creation by God is, according to the 17th century Anglican bishop James Usher. It's Usher with two S's, so I'm thinking that's Usher, who arrived at the date and time from a scholarly analysis of ancient writings in the Bible. Usher was especially satisfied with the date 4004 B.C. or B.C.E., as modern historians prefer, because it came exactly 4,000 years prior to 4 B.C., the date he accepted for the birth of Jesus. Which has never made sense to me. Why trust Catholics with times and dates when their Messiah's birthday, Jesus Christ, uh, happened in the year 4 BC? Four years before Christ? That really makes no sense. That it, You would think it would be on zero. And we know he was probably born in April, but they're telling us he was born on Christmas Day. Why are you trusting anything any Christian, Anglican, Catholic, whatever, says about calendars? Usher was not the only 17th century scholar to attempt such a chronology of the creation because sometimes it's hard to notice that your complete life's work is a total waste of time and energy. Others working on discovering the time of creation included not only clergy, but academics, including Isaac Newton. Seriously? Seriously? But Usher's date found favor with his contemporaries, in part because he had also relied on material other than the Bible, including ancient Greek, Roman, and Persian writings in both history and astronomy. In later years, Usher's chronology was especially popular with fundamentalists, including three-time presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan. Makes sense, as he was a complete nutter, who in 1925 cited it in his argument against Charles Darwin's theory of evolution in the infamous monkey trial of John Scopes in Tennessee. See, I told you it was a nutter. Of course, science long ago established that Usher's timeline was utter nonsense. Not that that would stop William Jennings Bryan from actually citing it in a court case. Nonsensical or not, he was going to be citing anything. But as late as the 1970s, this date, as the date of creation, was still included in the Gideon Bibles placed in hotel rooms around the world. Who knew? I mean, have you ever opened a Gideon Bible at a hotel room? The only time I've opened a Gideon Bible in a hotel room has been to leave This Is Hell stickers. And to this day, at 6 in the evening, this Thursday, 6,024 years ago, is still embraced by believers in young earth creationism as the moment God made the universe, which means this Thursday at 6 p.m., I'm throwing the universe a birthday party. Anything to distract me from what seems to be happening at every moment lately, the universe's funeral. Finally, in rotten history, on October 24, 1871, 149 years ago this Saturday in Los Angeles, where a tiny police force of just six officers tried to keep order in a violent, crime-ridden frontier town of some 6,000 people, a shootout erupted among two rival gangs of Chinese immigrants on what was then known as El Calle de los Negros, a street full of saloons, gambling, and prostitution. In case you're wondering... There is no street that follows where the unfortunately named Calle existed, as urban planning reshaped how Los Angeles was laid out. A cop who went to investigate the disturbance was shot in the shoulder, and a saloon owner who came to his aid was killed by another bullet. Given the town's already heavy climate of resentment against Chinese immigrants who were seen as willing to work for low wages, events on the street escalated fast, in other words violent racism. A mob of some 500 white and Latino locals gathered at a building where the mostly male Chinese immigrants had taken over. The mob forced its way into the building, shot some of the Chinese men to death, and dragged others outside to hang them on gallows. Quickly constructed at various locations up and down the street, one victim pleading for his life, a respected physician named Dr. Tong, offered the vigilantes all his money plus his diamond wedding ring. The captors killed him and chopped the ring finger off of his hand. A handful of more civilized bystanders protested the mass lynching, but they were immediately threatened with death. The whole episode took place within a complicated web of political corruption, and while a grand jury would later indict 25 men for the killing, only 10 would stand trial. Eight would be convicted for manslaughter, only to be freed on a legal technicality. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Daphne, has Alex told you who is going to be on this week's show? 
she has. Awesome. So who's on tomorrow's show? Yeah. Uh, Tuesday, Rob Wallace is coming to talk about his book, Dead Epidemi Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. Awesome. He's been on the show a couple times in the past, and people can find interviews with him at our website, thisishell.com, when they search on Wallace. What about Wednesday's show? Um, Xiao Wei Wang is coming to talk about their book, Blockchain Chicken Farm and other stories of tech in China's countryside. I'm really looking forward to that. And do we have anybody for Thursday? We do. Danielle Purifoy is coming to talk about their article, Knock on Wood, How Europe's Wood Pellet Ap Appetite Fuels Environmental Racism in the South. And Jeff Dorchin will be doing a moment of truth as well. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Daphne Oriana. Thanks to Daphne for producing. Thanks to Alex for supervising. Thanks to Ronaldo for the moment of truth. Thanks to Gloria Dickey for being today's guest. Special thanks to Theron and Richard for all the work they do behind the scenes. Again, we told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.